Today's show is sponsored by Miracle Made. And oh my God, you guys, you know that I love a luxurious set of sheets. And I now have such a set of sheets because of a miracle made. They are bedding that has been inspired by NASA. They've got silver infused fabrics that actually make temperature regulating a thing. Uh, so you're not like getting too hot or too cold or whatever, you know, the whole thing that happens with your body's temperature losing its mind. Miracle made helps with that. One of the little things that my husband particularly loves about Miracle Made is that it like doesn't have as much bacteria as regular sheets because of it's infused with this silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth. So it leaves the sheets cleaner for longer. And then the thing for my husband is that it doesn't give him acne, which is like an issue for some people. But more than all of that, it's just luxuriously comfortable and delightful. And it has that cooling feeling while also being cozy. Very hard to achieve those two things at the same time. I mean, miracle made, come on, well done. So here's what I think you should do. I think you should go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and buy some sheets today. And if you order today, you can save 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation at the checkout and you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. So there's just a lot of savings here, folks. Order today, you'll get 40% off. Use the promo code fake the nation. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation. And Miracle's so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you're not 100% satisfied, which I don't see happening, um, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash fake the nation and use the code fake the nation to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash fake the nation to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. This is a HeadGum Podcast. Just a quick note to let you know that we recorded this week's episode quite early in the week before news broke about E. Jean Carroll or about George Santos. So unfortunately, we will be getting to those next week. Fake the Nation, episode 356. Hello, hello. This is Fake the Nation, where we talk about news, we talk about culture, and where we grapple with the question, should mothers want to celebrate Mother's Day with their children? I'm your host, Nagin Farsad, and my husband asked if I wanted the day off from my child on Sunday, which immediately sounded delightful, but then also sounded wrong. Uh, so I don't know, mothers out there, do you always try to see your children on Mother's Day? There's no right answer. Today, we are going to talk about a very particular wedding photo dilemma. We'll also talk about the Phoenix economy and the economy economy. And finally, is it the end of the digital media age? This panel, you have no idea. You have no idea what kind of panel we've assembled for you today. It's remarkable. Um, joining us for the gajillionth time, we have um, the, the wonderful um, host of the podcast, The Political Orphanage, a show that I've also been on, not to brag. And um, I mean, you've just heard him everywhere uh, all, all the time, all at once. Um, he's so funny. He's not, you know, he's not your t typical lefty because I don't think he would quite describe himself as a lefty. Uh, 
He's his own brand of wonderful. It is Andrew Heaton. Hey, Andrew. Thank you. I am delighted to be back. I always have fun on this show uh, and uh, thrilled to be here, Nagin. Oh, my God. So happy you're here. And I'm so excited by this next panelist because it's his first time on the show. But it is not his first time in my earballs because I am a very, very regular listener to the uh, Slate Money podcast, of which he is a co-host. Um, so I, for the last, like, I don't know, when I discovered it, maybe a year and a half ago or something, I've just been every week, don't miss an episode type of listener. Love the show. He also has a new book out called The Phoenix Economy, which I think it come out, comes out um, this week. You can get it. It'll be in the bookstores. And he is also the chief financial correspondent at Axios. He is the very wonderful, and you're going to love him too and subscribe to all of his things, Felix Salmon. Hey, Felix. Wow, what an introduction. I feel like I need to just carry you around wherever I go so that you can introduce <laughs> me. Um, yeah, no, we do real introductions on this show because I happen to have the like privilege of being having having people on that I think are fucking fantastic. And you're one of them. So I'm so glad you're able to do this show. Um, and before we really get into it, I just want to remind listeners that they can listen to their succession recap pod on Mondays. Um, we had Isaac Mizrahi on last week. Not a big deal. And uh, this week we had Shane O'Neill from The New York Times, who's just like a cons- consummate no of style and um, trend. And uh, so he was so fun to talk with about Succession. Um, and also, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. If you like the pod, get more pod at patreon.com slash Nagin Farsad. For as little as $4 a month, you get two extra episodes of the podcast. Um all right, let's get into it with topic number one. So we're going to start with something light and utterly inconsequential. Uh, today's amuse-bouche comes from a mother who asks the ethicist whether or not she can edit the pink hair out of her daughter's wedding photos. And at first I thought it was her daughter, the one who was getting married, who had the pink hair. No, 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 no. It was this other guest whose pink hair was just t- drawing too much attention in the photo. So I want to get into broader versions of this question. But first, talk to me about this particular mom and the per- the pink hair that she's seeing. Um, Felix, your thoughts. So, yeah, this particular mom obviously is not a massive fan of pink hair and or she just doesn't want her daughter. It's her daughter, right, who got married? I think so, yeah. Um to be upstaged in the wedding photos. And if you're, if you don't have pink hair and you're in wedding photos next to someone with pink hair, then maybe the eye naturally goes to the pink hair and you're like, but this wedding photo is meant to be about the bride, not about the guest. And so I guess she was asking, can she go into Photoshop and tone down the pink a bit? Mm-hmm. Which I think is fine. She can do, you can do whatever you like in Photoshop. I, this is like, I have no problem with people doing anything in Photoshop. Uh, I come out of an entertainment background, and it surprises me that anyone has a problem with making things look better because so so little in entertainment <laughs> right. ever is meant to be the truth. Like when, when you watch any film, pick a film. Uh, George Clooney sitting there. Every single scene before they start rolling it, they stop it and they check his cufflinks to make sure they're immaculate. Someone comes and brushes his eyebrows, and that's true for everything, right? And in, in theater, we're, we're making we're making backdrops and things. So I, I don't think there's anything unethical about it. I actually think that they should go further. So what I would do is 
add little Easter eggs into it. So tone down the pink hair, but maybe add like Stalin and Churchill from the Yalta conference in the second row. <laughs> Just as a, as a nice, fun little thing for people when they're flipping through years later, where they're like, who's that guy? Is that, that would be Joseph Stalin. He was at Becky's wedding. And it's also funny, this mom has clearly like never utilized Instagram. You know what I mean? Because right. all you need is a filter and there's filters that literally tone down the pink, you know? Um, so it's just odd to me that this I, I that have this was a theory a though, Nikki. Yes. The only reason that this was even a question is because she went to journalism school. I swear, everything <laughs> bad in America you can blame on J school. And I swear she had some some J journalism professor who was like Photos are the are the unvarnished truth, and the minute you do any Photoshop on them, you are lying, and you must never lie. And I, I blame everything on on journalism. That's what I say. Well, yeah. I have a question for you then, as the chief financial correspondent at Axios. <laughs> um, but it, photos in in photojournalism are also, I mean, not like it's not like Churchill is added in, but there are, you know, some adjustments made, right, to make the photo look. Something? So it's really weird. Photojournalism in particular has a kind of unique set of mores around this. And basically what it says is you can crop, but you can't do much else. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it actually goes back to Stalinist days when he would, you know, when there would be like some purge and he would go back to a picture of the Politburo standing on the balcony of the Kremlin. There were 10 guys, now there are six guys, nobody asks any questions. Exactly, and and Milan (laughs) Kundera has this whole wonderful story about like the guy who gave his hat to someone else because he was cold, and then he got purged, and then from that point on, the only thing that was left of him was his hat, because his hat was being worn by someone else. Um, So yeah, people feel actually, I think it goes back to the Cold War, that these journalists and professors feel that editing photos in any way is kind of Stalinist. Oh, Jesus. Okay, Hmm. this is funny because I'm now realizing I've never asked about editing photos in journalism. This is like the first real time I've thought about it. But, um, and I would say Stalinist is just, is extreme. (laughs) It is extreme. But but my friend Anna Holmes, uh, he used to run a great blog called Jezebel, which is still going. The way she started Jezebel was by offering a $10,000 prize for anyone who would give her the unretouched photos from the cover of a woman's magazine. And then they would do the before and after the retouching. And this was scandalous, right? There was an actual scandal when people realized how much of a retouching job all of these women's mags were doing. And so on some level, it is perceived to be bad. And what's interesting, too, about that, it was also sort of, I think, and uh, I don't know if this is true at all, but it sort of seemed to have ushered in, if I were to speculate wildly, that era of like dove kind of real beauty, kind of like this is what women really look like. Like there there is a there is something I, I, I remember that time of like, this is what celebrities look like before they get airbrushed. Wow. And then it was like, and women get to look normal. And it was just like this era of like posting photos of women that look, you know, in an I look up, I woke up like this um, era. And it was just a very weird 
also silly area era because at the same time we're all still doing Instagram filters. Mm. So we're we're speaking out of both sides of our mouths. And one hand on one side we're like it's Stalinist um to edit anything. And on the other side <laughs> we're like let's use filters for everything. Now, here's my other question. Now, I so the way I had originally read the question just when I saw the headline was that the woman was offended just that by the like non-ceremonial look of of her daughter having had pink hair or something in as as the bride like that's how i read it um and the other thing about this is how much authority does the mother get to have in the official official like sort of archiving history making of a wedding. Literally all of the authority. Give the mother all of the authority. Everyone knows that the wedding is for yeah. the mother of the bride. That's the only person she, she who paid $80,000 to enjoy this day. <laughs> she ought to have a stakeholder share in it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that um, we, we can make a distinction between uh, the idealized versus the normal, I think, right? So your wedding, this is the most idealized that you want to look. You want to be um, incredibly beautiful and happy and all of those things. Um, when you go to like uh, fashion magazines, I think that does become a little bit different. Even though they're wanting to idealize it, they're also sort of pretending that this is normal for everybody, that my my shampoo makes me look like this right when I pop out. So I can, I can kind of see some variation there. But I, I think that they should absolutely have that ability to remove it. Like I saw this wonderful photo a, a couple of years ago of um, it was it was a wedding photo. The bride and groom are holding each other. They're they're outside. Everything everything's beautiful. And just just in the upper right hand corner, you can see two dogs humping in the background. And <laughs> it was great. It brought joy to my life. I would love to have that as my official wedding photo. But I could totally understand someone wanting to like you know uh, uh, buff that out uh, for that particular day. That's hilarious. Um, and do have either of you done anything at a wedding that uh, that that r ruffled any mother um, feathers. So I actually did turn up to a wedding with bright pink hair once. <laughs> How did that go down? And like, and I feel like I was, this went down fine with the mother of the bride. Wait, who was did you this. do it for the wedding or you just happened to be that way? No, I did it for the wedding. Okay. I was like, this was, I was young and foolish and I was like, I want to be super festive and colorful and so i'm gonna wear a dark green and gold frock coat and a frilly shirt and bright pink hair because why not and my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife was like what the hell are you doing you look like a muppet but it was too late at that point <laughs> so i kind of looked like a muppet and the mother of the bride was actually fine with it. She was awesome. And she's like, Felix, you look great. Mother of the groom, I'm not so sure about. She was a bit more conservative. Right, right. I mean, um, I, you know, I don't, I think my mom would also, she would be like, fine, you know, but she would just be like, oh, like, why? You know, and I could <laughs> see, I could see it sort of like bumming her out. But also like, as parents, I think at that point they know where they're dealing with late 20-somethings, early 30-somethings. They're all idiots in that particular band of age. Uh, you're going to get some pink hair. And that's just what everybody's dealing with. Um, folks, let me know, what is your particular ethical position on the editing of pink hair in <laughs> wedding photos? That is what we chose to talk about today on Fake the Nation. Um, because it's just fun to start out with something that really fucking doesn't matter. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking. 
we are back and we're ready for topic number two, all things economy. So Felix has this incredible new book out called The Phoenix Economy. Um, you can get it from your local bookseller, I'm sure, uh, but you could also get it from your independent bookseller online, like at bookshop.org, which will direct you to the thing that does the thing. Can I, can I plug my favorite, the audio version of bookshop.org, yeah. which is oh, yeah. libro.fm? So you can listen to audiobooks and support your local independent bookshop as well. And they are amazing. And if you buy my book on Libro.fm, I am the narrator. You get to hear me t speak the entire book. This voice. This voice, guys. This very voice. <laughs> I am going to picture you hours. with pink hair. Very, like, very intelligent, wearing a very nice <laughs> yeah, suit yeah, yeah, with yeah. pink hair the entire time. Just so I've got a little thing going while it's happening. Yeah. Nagina's not mentioned what color my hair is. You can't see it, but it is kind of is pink. To, yeah, <laughs> today he's rocking a nice, it's, it's a nice pink view. I have it filtered out, out on my Zoom screen. I can't see it. Um, so I, okay, so we have a lot of questions about, I, I have some questions about the Phoenix economy, of course. And um, I want to start, though, with questions about um, the confusing state of American and global economics. <laughs> and now, mind you, this podcast is normally populated by dirtbag comedians, people more like Andrew. Thank you. So keep Keep that in mind. So you're elevating this pod. Um, so be gentle uh, yeah. with us as you answer um, our my questions here. Um, my first question is about bank failures. And the question is really, what the fuck? Why the fuck? And should we give a fuck? Okay, th that's, that's really it's, the It's like I'm watching it. a congressional hearing. This is amazing. <laughs> uh, so, no, these are... Extremely good questions again, I have to say. And and I wish that Congress had asked those questions rather than doing what they actually did when they brought everyone up to testify. Um the first question is should we give a fuck? And the and that's the important one. Yeah. Should I worry about this? Does it affect me? Should I care? And the answer to that is no. You it is not important to you. It doesn't matter. Uh we've had four banks fail if you include Silvergate, really really three. I was actually a customer of one of them, First Republic, and it made no difference to me. If a bank fails, even if your bank fails, given the system that we have, given the way that you have the insurance corporation and the way the government has backstopped all of the banks, nothing ever happens. You just you keep the same bank account number, you keep the same routing number, um, you keep the same branches. So you have nothing to worry can, about. Can if you're you, worried you that your bank might fail, a, a, don't a worry. little bit more because I'm I'm delighted to hear yeah. that, uh, Felix. Yeah. I have eighty two dollars right now, and if the congratulations, thank you very much. I'm very proud of if you. The, if the bank went under, my my concern yeah. would be. I know that the FDIC uh, uh, is going to uh, take care of us. That, that you know it's it's yeah. it's it's secured. Eighty two is less than two hundred and fifty thousand. Yes, I'm, I'm well so, below yes. the threshold. <laughs> that said, though, I, I always just sort of assumed that there would be like a two year gap where I have to file paperwork, and and the government's like, yep, we're going to refund you the eighty two dollars. It's going to get to you in a year and a half. What if I need nope. to buy like a popsicle or a hamburger yeah. or something you during can, that time? You can, your debit card keeps on working. Your account really? keeps on working. Your ATM card keeps on working. Your account number stays the same. Okay. Nothing changes. Okay. Wait, so the government basically takes over the function the, of the institution so, yeah. or somebody. So in Silicon Valley Bank, first the government took over the function of the institution. You know what the first thing they did was? They took every single employee of Silicon Valley Bank and raised their pay by 50%. And they said, we want 
this bank to continue to function so much that we will raise all of your pay by 50% just to make sure that you don't have any incentive to leave. That's how much they want continuity. This is not just, you know, you will get your money back eventually. This is very much, we want this to be completely seamless. And then eventually what they do is they sell the bank to someone else. There was this bank called First Citizens who bought SVB. There was JP Morgan who bought First Republic. And then that new bank is a perfectly good operating functioning thing and they just keep on operating as before and so then are they going to keep first republic as a brand or whatever no no they're gonna first republic will eventually disappear as a a brand but that's going to take a while they're not going to rush anything got you um and i want to say that i because i'm a listener of slate money not to promote you again Uh, I and my parents also had a, a, an account at First Republic. I was able to give them all of that information because they called me in a panic. And I was like, no, 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 don't worry. Felix Salmon of Axios <laughs> told me what to do, which is nothing. Do nothing. You're totally fine. Andrew, what were you going to say? OK, so I, I've got a question when when uh, there's like a bailout. Uh, I'm not a bank, but someday I hope to become a bank. And that would be nice, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm s- is that what you're doing podcasting for, but, but this Andrew? Is, but this I'm just is so also tired the, of being Andrew the dirt I just want to be anything else. The dirtbag comedians, the, th- the thing that makes them dirtbag is they don't just want to become a bank. They want to become a failed bank. Yes. Okay. <laughs> See, exactly. Okay. I want to be a There's failed a solo bank, show in that. But my, yeah. my concern is, let's say I take like, – I'm, 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 I'm first bank of heat and comedy, and I, I make a, a lot of really shaky investments in bananas and, and yes. pop humor and things. And uh, the, <laughs> uh-huh. I, I go kaput. Um, I learned this term moral hazard, where if if the government comes and bails me out, I go, well, all right, worked last time. Maybe I'll just keep doing the crazy stuff. So is, is there concern that, that the banks will make bad decisions if they know that there's somebody there to cushion their fall? Absolutely. And that's what we saw in 2008, right, was a bunch of banks effectively getting bailed out by the government that you had you know, Tim Geithner and the Obama administration like coming in and forcing banks to take billions of dollars in bailout funds so that they would keep stay solvent and keep on going. And then there was all these questions about like, why did the CEOs keep on getting paid millions of dollars? And, you know, why did the shareholders keep hold of their money when the government had to bail them out and all of this kind of thing? In 2023, that is not an issue, right? In 2023, all of the shareholders got zeroed out. They lost all of their money. All of the bondholders who lent money to that bank got zeroed out. Anyone who took that bank's risk lost all of their money. At Silicon Valley Bank, basically all of the executives got fired pretty much immediately. I'm sure that most of the senior executives at First Republic are going to get fired. So what what you see is no real incentive on the part of the bankers to go through this because the for the bankers and for the shareholders and the people who have stock in the company, mm. it's very painful for them. The yeah. only people it's not painful Just for are the, de- are the depositors yeah. and the customers. Exactly. Okay. And that's how it should be. Um, now, uh, okay, very well done on answering the questions about bank failures. I'm going to just... Wait, wait, can, I, like... can, I, can I ask oh, answer yeah. one other part of that question, though? Because oh, we yes, only an- answered the, 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 the last bit. The first, the first bit, which is kind of the more interesting bit, is like what the fuck just happened and is this weird? And the answer is, this is really fucking weird, right? Because none none of these banks made bad loans. Normally, the way that banks fail is they make bad loans and the people they lend money to can't pay the money back and then they lose their money, right? That's not what happened here. Everyone who they lent money to is still paying their money back. There's been no defaults. And 
what you basically have is this very weird world where the reason they failed was because they got too much money. During the pandemic, there was all of this fiscal policy and monetary policy, and you don't need to worry what that means. But what it means is there was just like lots more money sloshing around the economy, especially around Silicon Valley. And all of those people in Silicon Valley and their companies put their money in the bank. And then when interest rates started going up, they started taking their money out of the bank. And that action of putting money into the bank and then taking it out of the bank was basically what caused these banks to fail. And if it hadn't been for all of the crazy pandemic stuff, these banks would have been fine. And that's really what my book is about, is that weird, unexpected, improbable things happen as a result of the pandemic. No one would have predicted, you know, if you said there's a virus coming and it's going to kill a million Americans, that the obvious consequence of that would be Banking. Banks are going too to fail because money. they have too much so money. Weird. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's the theme of the book. It's basically expect the unexpected. Weird shit is going to happen. And then also that, I mean, with SVB and, you know, we talked about it on this show in our hobbling fashion, that there was a there were dudes who were like, this does I don't like how this looks. Take your money out. And that became a contagion. Um, how much is kind of the social media dude saying shit out loud thing a problem? That was a big problem in SVB, right? There was an actual bank run at SVB. We saw 42 billion dollars leave SVB in one day. This is a bank run, an order of magnitude higher than anything we have ever seen in the history of banking anywhere in the world. That This is absolutely astonishing levels of bank run. Um, not so much with First Republic, though. Um, with First Republic, it was just a whole bunch of people who had money in the bank and were like, I'm not making a lot of interest on this money. And if I just move it somewhere else, I'll get more interest. And that was how they lost all of their deposits. So I'd say in one case, it was a good old-fashioned bank run where people talk to each other and they use social media and WhatsApp groups and all of the rest of it, but not so much in the other ones. One of my favorite banking jokes is from 30 Rock where um, Tina Fey, where, where um, Alec Baldwin asked Tina Fey, like, what do you, you know, you should have money. You've had this job for a long time or whatever. And she says, yeah, I have like $15,000 in a checking account. <laughs> and he says, so, and I think he says something like, um, like, Lemon, what are you, a peasant? You know, <laughs> But I was sort of, I remember at that point being like, oh, I should have a savings account. <laughs> so uh, that's how 30 Rock ended up um, wor worming its way into my finances. Andrew, you were well, going to say. say my uh, uh, Nagin's economic background comes from watching 30 Rock. My economic background comes from watching uh, that Jimmy Stewart movie where the the angel makes it's him go back in life. time. That's it. Yeah. So I watched yep. that. And there's a bank run on that, right? That, what happens is. is there's a bank run on the savings and loan, and Jimmy Stewart comes out and goes, well, I, I don't have your money. It's in Fred's house and Bill's house and, 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 and Ted's house. And then they all go, he's a great guy. And it, But they couldn't do that with uh, Silicon. Like, if I were Silicon Valley, I would have come out and been like, well, we have the money. Because uh, you got to do the, well, it, uh, our, our people are paying us, so there's no problem yeah, here. They just, they, they just needed to do a better fine. Jimmy Stewart impression. My, my favorite bank run in the movies is not It's the Wonderful Life. It's Mary Poppins. Do you remember the bank run in Mary Poppins? That no. it was glorious. And they they dealt with it by literally just shutting the doors of the bank and bolting them shut. And then the depositors couldn't get in to get their money out. And I don't Smart. know if they tried that treat one them, Treat them like raccoons that are trying to get into the exactly. house. But also, like, couldn't have... Uh, speaking of just closing doors, I mean, couldn't First Republic be like, um, sorry, the website is down, you guys. So sorry. 
And then that's it. They kind of did. There was a whole bunch、oh, of people、shit. who put in wire transfer requests at, at Silicon Valley Bank, and the wire just never went through. That I, that、yeah. is actually what happened. And this is, and so I think the takeaway from all of this is don't have too much money. <laughs> Well, I, I've got a, a real question for you. Just keep it at a minimum of eighty-three dollars for I popsicles and hamburgers. But, 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 but you learn about like what's what's the decent amount of money from from Thirty Rock. I learn about it from Succession, right? Where Tom <laughs> patiently <laughs>、yeah. explains to Greg that five million dollars is the worst amount of money to have. You're you know you're the poorest、yeah. rich person. You're not rich enough to get taken seriously, and it's terrible. So just make sure you don't have five million dollars because that's going to get you nowhere. I'm doing、yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrible. Well, I've I've got a, a real question. If I can lob the statue, Felix,、um, you, you said that the 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 problem with uh, uh, First Republic and Silicon Valley is that there was too much money sloshing around there. Did did that come from、uh, during the pandemic? We were all just weren't spending money, so we were putting in the bank. Did it come、yes. from? Or did did it come from、uh, cash injections through subsidies through、uh, the CARES、yes. Act? Like we're. So all of the above, just just the, the. So we had we had five trillion dollars of economic stimulus、um, over the course of the pandemic, starting under Trump and then continuing under Biden, and that five trillion dollars is just an insane amount of money, and a bunch of it ended up in Silicon Valley in one way or another. Part of it, like as you say, through people spending less and their savings going up. Part of it through. Um, things like the PPP program, which get, wrote big checks to businesses,、um, and then on top of that, you had the Federal Reserve. You had the monetary policy, right? The Fed was、um, bringing interest rates down to zero. It was doing this thing called quantitative easing, which I won't bore you with. But it all basically means more cash in the economy. And Silicon Valley, especially when interest rates are at zero, is a very attractive place for money to go because in Silicon Valley. They they're like I'm not earning any interest on my money in the real economy, but maybe if I send my money to Silicon Valley, then they can invest it in some whiz bang new technology, and I'll make a hundred times my money by、mm-hmm. investing in the next Facebook. And so that's where the risk capital tends to flow. But while they're waiting to that invest that money, what they're doing is they're just keeping it in a bank account at First Republic or Silicon Valley Bank. So is is that kind of like how? Um, like、uh, historically, up until recently, savings accounts over the last twenty years weren't yielding very much interest. So I might put my money in Robinhood, my eighty-two dollars, and exactly in a stock. So、yeah. the, the, the system was encouraging me to to make bigger risks. And same、yes. with this on a macro level. Okay. Yes, and 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 this is. All of chapter three in my book. Yes.、Hmm. Well, let's talk about that book. You you say in the Phoenix Economy that the idea behind this book is that the unexpected isn't over. The shock and trauma of the pandemic, its long term downsides as well as the unexpected upsides, are not entirely in the past. They'll continue to emerge for decades to come, just like the shock and trauma of World War II shaped personal and geopolitical behavior for half a century after the war was over. I got like a little,、uh, just like. Um, I don't know, like little heart palpitations. Reading that, what is the?、Um, let's talk about the your, the Phoenix economy. What's the, what? What does that mean? Rising out of the ashes of the pandemic, and it, what is the hopeful aspect of it? Because we do a lot of hopeful talk on this podcast. As you should, hope is good. And and as I as I say, like I'm there's this thing called nominative determinism, right? Like if you're named Felix, you're going to be hopeful. You're going to be an And so it's. I'm trying my best to try and find like the silver lining to a million Americans just died. But like, let's you know stipulate first and foremost 
this was a very, very big like mass death event. And a lot of people haven't really come to terms with that. We're not really being honest with ourselves about how bad it was medically. But it wasn't just medically bad. It wasn't just bad in terms of mortality. It was also really bad in terms of the economy. The whole economy was this dynamic system which was spinning really fast. And it immediately just came to a screeching halt in May, in March 2020. And everything broke. The supply chains broke. The you know way we work broke. The job market broke. Unemployment spiked to 20%. And what we needed to do was rebuild a new economy out of the ashes of the old one because there was no way, there was actually no way of rebuilding the old economy. And anyone who tried failed. The people who tried to do something new kind of succeeded in some interesting ways. The people who tried to go back to how things were before have broadly failed. And so that's what that's the general idea of the Phoenix economy is that out of the ashes of the old economy, out of the wreckage that we saw in March and April 2020, we have built something new and different. And it is almost impossible to overstate how different it is. And it often feels like it's similar. But that, those feelings of similarity mask big and profound changes. Again, I the, it is, I guess I just want you to be like, and it's different really different but like it's gonna be so great <laughs> so it's good it's gonna be what i say is the new not normal is my slogan mm-hmm. um which means bigger upsides and bigger downsides there's going to be more triumphs and more tragedies you're not going to be able to predict things for decades ahead right so Someone like Warren Buffett made all of his money by just saying, I am making a big long, long-term long bet on the health of the American economy. And he became like the richest man in the world by just keeping that single North Star and sticking to it. And in the new not normal, that doesn't work. You need to change your mind. New truths arrive. New facts arrive. We don't really even know what's true half the time. Um, and you just need to be a lot more nimble and a lot less kind of bullheaded about things. You know, one of the cha- one of the chapters in your book is called LOL Nothing Matters, which I thought was really <laughs> hilarious. And you talk about the rise of crypto and NFTs. And I think this was a period of the pandemic that was so specific. And we all remembered so clearly. And I, I think a lot of us are confused about whether that era is over. Is the, Can we all safely put crypto um, in the nostalgia shelf? Or where where are we with all of that? I don't think we can. I mean, I think maybe, I mean, I very much doubt that Dogecoin is going to come screaming back, right? I, I think that, <laughs> that, and we know for a fact that, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond stock is not going to come screaming back or any of the, or many of those other meme stocks that, people were trading in the winter of 2021. So in terms of specifics, yeah, that was that was this kind of feverish moment in the markets. In terms of will, you know, can we put that on the, on the nostalgia shelf? I think no. I think that we have now trained a whole generation of investors that it is possible to get rich quick. And people are going to be on the lookout for the next you know, get rich quick opportunity. And people are not going to be fobbed off, you know, while they have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of student loans, with the idea that they can just put their money in a savings account earning 4%. And that is going to 
help them get rich slowly. It's not. The mathematics doesn't work. They know that if they want to get rich, they're going to need a trampoline rather than a ladder. And so they're going to be out there looking for the trampolines. Uh, Felix, un unlike our friend Nagin, I do not traffic in hope. I traffic in fear. So <laughs> I, I would like to ask you, what are you most worried about with this new economy? Um, a huge amount of potential downside. Like right now, I'm worried about a government debt default, which could turn out to be incredibly catastrophic. Um, over the more sort of medium term, I'm worried about another pandemic, which could be a lot worse than the last one. And the last one was really bad. We are not going to go another 100 years without a pandemic. You know, that was a weird statistical aberration. Um, I am worried about the way, well, the other massive thing I'm worried about is climate change. Right. Climate change is going to make everything worse. It's going to make it's going to drown cities. It's going to cause huge amounts of forced migration, migration. It's going to collapse electrical grids. It's going to cause wars. Right. And all you know, and this is just going to get worse and worse. There's no point in our lifetimes where climate change is going to reverse and start getting better. So, yeah, there's a lot of things to worry about. The, the hope comes in where I look at the way that everyone on the planet stopped moving in March 2020, and we had this collective action of everyone just doing the same thing at the same time for the sake of the greater good, right? And that's what we need to tackle climate change is collective action. And before the pandemic, there was never an example of the whole world really coming together to tackle a global emergency in that way. And now we have an example. And it's harder to do it in the case of carbon emissions than it is in pandemic because it's not as immediate of a threat. But at least we know it's possible. When you um, say you I, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. You had a follow up? Well, I just thought you, you said in the short term, you're worried about uh, debt default. Is that just deficits, uh, 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 debt ceiling stuff? The uh, debt yes. Ceiling, uh, yeah. the you're, debt ceiling. you're talking about yeah. the, the, the year by year. You're not talking about the overall debt that you're worried about? Correct. The, the, the size of the debt I am not worried about. The fact that there is a debt ceiling is terrifying. There should not be a debt ceiling. It serves no purpose. It is the dumbest thing in American dumb, politics. Dumb, and, dumb. and if we can please abolish it, let's do that. But for some reason, which I've never entirely understood, it's almost impossible to find even a Democrat, let alone a Republican, who's in favor of abolishing the debt ceiling. But it should be abolished. It's really dangerous. And, you know, these games of chicken can end in tragedy. And in this case, it would be catastrophic tragedy. Yeah, we've talked about the de debt ceiling, like on this podcast every year since 2016. It's really annoying, very stupid, totally unnecessary. Uh, if Biden wants to do the coin, the one special coin... The coin. Fucking I love the coin do, so much. I, do the coin. <laughs> do the coin. Mint the coin. Hashtag mint I the coin. I mean, guys. Okay, well, um, Felix, I think people should buy your book. Thank this, you. This, I think they it, should buy my book as well. I, too, I, think um, people should buy Felix's <laughs> book. We have a consensus. We're unanimous. No, and I, and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I have read a couple of chapters and I've just like loved it. It's you're so smart and it's so brilliant. Um, so I really I highly, highly recommend this book. And now let us move on to topic number three. Oh, actually. Folks, before we get into topic number three, <laughs> I want to remind listeners, if you haven't already posted a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, we would love it. It really helps people find their show. Um, we've gotten so many delightful reviews from listeners. And next week, I'm going to go back to showcasing some of them. So don't forget to post your reviews. And now, 
Let's get into topic number three. We read a piece in the New York Times by Ben Smith, who incidentally founded BuzzFeed. And in it, he makes a claim that we're watching the end of a digital media age. And it all started with Jezebel. Now, the piece talks about Jezebel. And you mentioned Jezebel just now, um, Felix. And uh, he says that that Jezebel started an era of journalists sort of melding their identities with the stories that they told. And I was just I kind of just first wanted us to think back at that time, Andrew. I don't know if you remember that time. Um, did you feel the stuffiness of mainstream news? Was it exciting that that outlets like Jezebel were coming out and and where journalists were melding their identities with stories? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I I have never been talented or successful enough to work for one of those very large institutions, and so for me it was. <laughs> That's it what was... I always have said about you: Thank never you. talented or yeah, successful. It's very enough. strange. Like, she'll, I'll be on a date. The Gide will wander up apropos of nothing and be like, he could never work for the New York Times. And then she'll go yeah. away. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. Um, my, yeah, my, my, my read of this is a little bit different. It's not, I was never bothered by the stuffiness of legacy media. Uh, in fact, I kind of like the stuffiness of legacy media because it implies that there's a, a kind of adult responsibility in the room. The things that have bothered me about legacy media tend to be where a small group of gatekeepers is able to constrict the window of what we're talking about and they're by control the national narrative. I think that's had uh, the, the the dissolution of the gatekeepers, the death of the gatekeepers. That's unleashed a lot of chaos in our culture, kind of like when the printing press came out and you could just write a pamphlet and you didn't have to have your ideas checked by anybody. So it's caused a lot. But I think by and large, it's been a positive one in that, for one thing, folks like me can have a full-time job, which is nice. Uh, but also it's, it's very difficult to have like, it's much more difficult, I think, now for um, uh, media to go, uh, we should definitely go into Iraq. Uh, good call. No one being being able to to kind of restrict that message. I think that that's been positive, and I don't think that the 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 digital age is going to die the way it was sort of uh, predicted in the article either. I, I think that um, you're apt to see what's been happening continue to accelerate uh, with newspapers. The highest grossing income for newspapers was the year before they went kaput, and I suspect cable television is going to do that same thing, where you're going to see it's going to grow in in revenue, and then all of a sudden it's going to atomize, and what's going to be left are scrappy digital content producers like Nagin and to a lesser extent me. So I feel, I feel like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, there's, there's Andrew being his optimistic self and I'm going to have to be the pessimist for once. Um, what Andrew is saying is basically exactly what I was saying in 2005, 2006. Um, and I really believed I was, I've been blogging since 2001. I remember exactly what Andrew was t- talking about in terms of, you know, after 9-11, um, it was the bloggers who were very skeptical about in going into Afghanistan and then Iraq while the mainstream media was just lapping up whatever Colin Powell, you know, came up with. But then things changed, right? I was the biggest believer of all in like the, the bloggers were the small furry mammals who were going to bring down the dinosaurs of the mainstream media. It didn't work out that way. What happened was, was two things. One was that the mainstream media actually did a really good job of learning from the bloggers. And in Ben's book, he has a whole bunch of you know scenes of Jonah Peretti and who founded BuzzFeed, like coming into the New York Times and sharing his wisdom, and the New York Times actually listening to him. Um, and so then, you know, they someone like Corey Seeker, who used to be the editor of Gawker, wound up becoming like the editor of the Style section of the New York Times. The oh, Ben Smith himself is at the New York Times, and and Ben himself moved to the New York Times exactly. And so and so the 
the mainstream media became a lot bloggier. And then the blogs, you know, basically got killed by a bunch of different things, including the mainstream media becoming bloggier, but also by the death of Google Reader and by the rise of Twitter. And what they morphed into was really terrifying. And then if you look at the 2010s, we don't have that wonderful many-to-many confluence of ideas that we got in the 2000s. In the 2010s, what we have is the rise of Ben Shapiro, Breitbart, and a bunch of other, uh, you know, Daily Wire, a bunch of like very centralized right-wing misinformation machines who weaponized the new technology for political purposes in a way that, as Andrew has admitted, has had extremely deleterious consequences. And we we wound up living in a country where 40% of the country thinks that Donald Trump won the last election. And that is entirely a consequence of the, you know, blogification of the media on some level. Ben talks about this in his book, and it's a genuine tragedy. And Andrew, I'm very happy that you are able to make a living by podcasting. But I'm sorry, but like 40% of the country thinking that Donald Trump won the last election is it it more than outweighs that. (laughs) Have you met Andrew, though? (laughs) He's really cool. Thank you. He's a fun hang. I'm delightful. I'm a a fun guy. But, But to push back a little bit, though, couldn't we go back in time and find other things that the American public was hoodwinked over? Like we went to war with Spain over a bunch of yellow journalism back in the day. And there, I think there's been lots of instances where the American public has believed something kind of crazy back before we had all of this. Yeah. And and I think, you know, certainly when I was hanging around in the in the 2000s, we all thought of that period of yellow journalism as like a bad thing and an aberrant part of history, which we shouldn't want to replicate. Um, I, you know, you, you mentioned the, the Trump people. Um, one of the things that I felt like Ben, ben Smith got right was that he pointed to the rabid readership of Jezebel in those early days and how the readership ended up kind of, you know, being the early like cancelers um, of, of, of writers. If a writer strayed from the orthodoxy of the, of the Jezebel ethos, readers would be like, what are you doing? Stop. You know, and that, that kind of like um, mass, um, uh, it empowered these these readers to kind of call out writers, which is nice in a way, but also terrible in a way because it was it created a scarier thing, like of what why are these readers behaving this way? And then, of course, at the same time, we had the you know the rise of Twitter and all that stuff. So that we we sort of led ourselves into this world of people are out here just criticizing shit they see online. (laughs) And that's what we all do. And and, And it's rageful and shitty. And I was a blogger for many years. And basically, that was how I blogged. And that's how most people I knew blogged is, you know, the famous cartoon of like, honey, you're coming to bed. No, I can't. Why? What's happening? Someone is wrong on the internet, you know, and you're, <laughs> you're on, on your blog sort of like trying to say, you need to, we, I need to tell everyone that someone is wrong on the internet. And that was me. And so long as the Jezebel commenters were just commenting in the Jezebel comment section, they were creating on the fly a whole new way of looking at the world, which I think really was constructive and useful and a good counterbalance to the kind of message that had historically been served up to them by the women's magazines. What happened then, and Nick Denton, who started Jezebel, certainly didn't see this coming, and neither did any of the rest of us, is Twitter. 
And then when Twitter came along, everything changed because suddenly they weren't just Jezebel commenters, right? Suddenly it wasn't just people sounding off in the comments of a blog. Suddenly it was all of Twitter doing that swarm, yeah. you know, while like at mentioning the person in question and and that's when cancel culture really started becoming weaponized and yeah that wasn't the blogs that was twitter i would say it was yeah that wasn't the blogs that was twitter but it's sort of like it feel it does feel like the the dna of it came from this kind of jezebel readership sure the, that, the, the, that the, the readers in the, line. the jezebel commenters migrated to twitter and then it and then all hell broke, broke loose. and then Absolutely. all hell broke loose yeah and i and it does feel like a grody part of the thing the other thing that i and that i never liked is that that sort of vice um, the the like the this thing where like reporters have attitudes and like they wear beanies sometimes. <laughs> like, <laughs> they you know skateboard I mean? like, to work. Take they skateboard that, to the work. Man. Yeah, like I didn't. I I don't want to like intuit what my journalist had for breakfast. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to know shit about their personal lives by like the way they do their journalism. You know what I mean? And there is that that era that I feel like was ushered in by the by that that particular brand of digital media. Right. I mean, like, where it was yeah, like a the, rock the star, the star yeah, journalist like at, at Jezebel called herself slut machine right well, I, um, I think there's, there's also <laughs> this um the, the 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 model of i am going to get a really big base by whipping up people into an angry mob um you can you can build up a very big group of people doing that but they'll turn on you so like like on on my show like i've very intentionally tried to find people that have friends they disagree with that's the big temperamental thing so it's very unlikely that my folks are going to come after me with a pitchfork but I've I've known some comedians that really enjoyed leading the crusade, and then when they did something wrong, all of a sudden their army came after them, and and that and, and then goes and unleashes terror elsewhere. It's so I mean I, I'm 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 lucky in that like listeners have not <laughs> come after me, um, but I have been on conservative talk radio. And where the listeners were essentially, you know, I was out promoting my book and um, I, I asked my publicist to please try and put me in on conservative radio because I was like, let's start a dialogue <laughs> like very, very Pollyannishly. And I mean, I would do it again. Um, and most of the conservative um you know, hosts that I was in contact with, they were really nice and they weren't trying to like do me any harm, but there was one that really wasn't nice and that really was trying to do me harm and did. Like I was in a maelstrom for like, uh, like it was like three or four days of just not even being able to log on to Oof. anything on the internet because I was just being eaten alive. Yeah. And, um, you know, and to get the kind of death threats and all of that stuff that comes with that is just really, it's it's troubling, which is not specifically what Jezebel uh, commenters were doing um but it is kind of what the entire internet has grown into and i think um what i would like to what i would like to um kind of conclude from the dying of these various media outlets <laughs> is that people are like tired want, maybe want a little bit less like cool skateboarder gay in their journalist and more like or like dude that's super conservative in their fake journalist or whatever like i i think they just want 
Like, dude, just tell me the weather and like a top line thing. And and then let's all be like normal about it. I I hope you're right, because the only way I will ever be hip is if a bunch of people go, where'd Garrison Keillor go? Is yeah. there anybody that's just kind of folksy and anodyne that we can hear stuff from? That's the only way I've ever get a rise. Didn't I Garrison Keillor get canceled? He, oh, yeah. he did. He got a little I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I agree that it's sort of like maybe the appetite is turning towards... Like, let's just, where are these just one note nice people who just want to share some information and some opinions that are um, not insane? Uh, I don't know. I like, that's where I'm, well, I, I'm I hoping think this all goes. Having been in, in media and, and having known a bunch of conservative talk radio people as, as well as, as folks at the various blogs we've been mentioning, I, I think that a big part of what's happening right now is, is just kind of boils down to labor. Uh, and what I mean by that is right now there's a ton of people that are exhausted by hate-filled media. Like that is, I think most Americans are um, part of the exhausted majority. They're neither extremely right-wing nor extremely left-wing. They they know people that they disagree with. They're capable of doing that. And they're kind of exhausted. But when I, when I go into some of these uh, media models, um, there's a kind of relentlessness that requires that the content be easy to uh, to just cram out on a conveyor belt. So like with uh, conservative talk radio, um, most of those shows I believe are doing about three hours a day. That's three hours a day. That's a lot of time, right? So like on today's show, Nagin has taken time uh, to, to bring on a very intelligent author and has, has read part of his book, has began reading his book to ask intelligent questions for the benefit of, of the audience, which is all phenomenal. But uh, a lot of those people doing those three-hour things they're doing 15 hours. So they just don't have time for this. So what do they do? They go culture war because they can look at a headline that says uh, transgender professor yelled at veteran. And like, that's everything you need to know. And then they can just kind of rant about it. And I think a lot of the blogging too kind of created the same thing where uh, instead of writing uh, one article per day for a newspaper, now you have to write five posts per day for a blog. So what happens? You end up kind of uh, putting your effort on low calorie outrage and low calorie tribalism because you can get a really good bang for that uh, but not have to put in the time. And I, I think that as the, the digital mediums and the the media has has shifted in terms of that output, the the messaging has followed suit and created all of this. Kendall Roy would call it bite-size info snacks. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, do you have any final thoughts on this, Felix, as we wrap up? I have way, way too many final thoughts. Oh, my, my main thought is just, I miss the blogs. You know, there was this halcyon era from like 2003 to 2009 where blogs were amazing. And it was I, fun. I, I wish they would come back. Um, folks, let me know. Is this the end of the digital media age? Um, check out that piece. It was super interesting. Um, we're, we're all so curious to know. But what I would love to do um, is, first of all, thank you both for being so tremendous. I knew this would be tremendous, and it was tremendous. Uh, and I would love for the people of Fake the Nation to be able to follow you and all the wonderful things that you do. Andrew Heaton, where do they do that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mighty Heaton, but I'm not that active on it. What I would posit is if you enjoyed my dulcet tones and Jimmy Stewart impression, 
and and you got really really roused by me mentioning that Garrison Keeler anecdote. You can you can check out my podcast, <laughs> The Political Orphanage, so called because I myself am very exhausted of the red team versus blue team thing, and have have built up a podcast that's trying to get around that and just solve problems. So check out the Political Orphanage. Check out the Political Orphanage. It's such a fun show. I've been on it. It's really great. Thank you. Um, and Felix Salmon. Uh, of Axios. Where do people find you? Uh, so subscribe to the Axios Markets newsletter at axios.com. Uh, I'm on Felix Salmon at Twitter, and I'm trying to do more on Mastodon. Um, uh, but yeah, subscribe to the Slate Money feed, because not only do we have a podcast which really is not political at all. So if you ever get bored of politics, just listen to Slate Money and we'll talk about a whole bunch of things like fake handbags that have nothing to do with politics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I'm sorry about this, Nagin, but we too have a succession recap podcast. <laughs> so, so, like, you'll have to... I know, I learned later. <laughs> you, can, you can pick one or you can listen to them both because there is no such thing as too many succession recap podcasts. No, there really isn't. There really isn't. They do an excellent one. Um, folks, and don't forget to buy his book, The Phoenix Economy, which is now available. Um, and it's really excellent. And I will, I can tell you more fully how excellent it is in a few weeks from now. And like m- probably more honestly in a couple of months from now because I have a child and that's how long it takes for me to read a book these days. <laughs> so um, the, the fact that I got through as much of it as I did before today's um, episode is just a testament to how wonderful the book is. Um, And folks, you know where to find me and all the things that I do. Don't forget um, to let us know if you have any ideas for other recap pods because we're thinking of continuing um, the fun we're having with Succession by recapping another show. There's been some votes for Beef. If you would like to vote for Beef as well, hit me up. You can uh, email me at fakethenationpodcast at gmail.com and all the social medias uh, that are possibly also dying. I don't know, somehow. Um, Some of them are dying for sure. Um, um, and I would love to thank all the people that make this show a possibility. That's our wonderful producer, Andrew McGuire. Um, our theme music was written by the incredible Gabby Alter. Uh, thanks to everyone at HeadGum who makes this show a possibility. And we will be back in your earballs next week. That was a HeadGum podcast.